Welcome to Running Off the Rails. My name is Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasco. And today, we'll be talking about how to make your villains in Dungeons & Dragons more punchable. How can you get your players to just fixate on how much they hate the villains of your story so that they're focused on defeating the villains, whether that be by killing them or arresting them or dismantling the organization that they've been building? And stay focused on the adventure that you planned. That's right. This episode is all about the emotional buy-in of the players. We want to show the players that they have enemies that are really evil. And we want them to feel like they have a license to kill. And what better way is there to get your players to really, really loathe the villain in their game than by having that character kick a dog? And of course, by kicking the dog, we're referring to the timeless TV trope, pet the cat, kick the dog. It refers to old westerns where three bandits would ride into town. One would shoot the sheriff, one would shoot the deputy, and one, just to prove that he was a really, really bad guy, would kick a dog. But before we get into the meat of the episode, we're going to catch up again and see how each other are doing in our own lives. So, right, how's it going? It's going really good. Thanks for asking. Just started a new job, and uh, it's going really well. Uh, the job search was taking up a lot of my time, but perhaps even more detrimental than that, it was taking up a ton of my attention. Even though I had time to work on the Kickstarter uh, and like Zaul, I just felt all of my energy going into, I guess, maybe like the uncertainty that was kind of hanging over my head for, for whether or not I could find a, a new job. So I've, I've found that I'm, now that I have a new job, wackily enough, I have this like renewed energy and renewed excitement to, to work on Dungeons and Dragons, especially the Zawul stuff and the, the print on demand uh, part of the Kickstarter as well. Honestly, that makes perfect sense to me. I think that looking for a job is a full-time job. It requires so much energy, like you said, and a lot of time. Really <laughs> is something I'm glad I haven't had to do for a little while. It's a really tough process to go through, which is one of the reasons why I'm still at the current company I'm at. So I, I definitely appreciate that. But it's awesome that you've been able to get reinvigorated with the Kickstarter stuff. What's the status of that? That's a great question. I'm actually putting together an update that will go out uh, later today. So folks will actually probably have received this update by the time they're listening to this podcast episode. But we just got approved on Drive-Thru RPG for the print-on-demand product. And they just generated 560 unique discount codes <laughs> that we can distribute to each of the backers. That was a whole rigmarole trying to figure out how to actually get everyone their own discount for the print-on-demand product. Uh, but that's been figured out. Yesterday, they sent me a spreadsheet with 560 discount codes on it. So, oh God. so we're yeah. all set to go. So that, that update will go out today. And it, it has some of JJ's animated map work in it as well. I asked JJ how that was going a few days ago, and he sent me a teaser. He's been working on actually adding ambient animation to the entire battle map, not just like the swirling mist effect 
that we promised when we first hit that stretch goal. So it, it looks really good. That's so cool. All of JJ's work that I've seen has been so impressive. Like he's so good. Yeah, he's he's truly excellent. Uh, his work is inspired, and you can you can feel the love that uh, that goes into the the motion work that he has created in his work. I've seen some of his professional work as well, but also for the Kickstarter, you can just feel the love. Yeah, for sure. And uh, having something print on demand, I mean, having the physical copy will be amazing as well too. Absolutely. I just recorded a YouTube video so that folks will be able to like see what it looks like and feels like. It's really cool having it on the shelf. It it feels amazing. I'm I'm really happy and proud of the work that we did. It's taken longer than I think any of us thought it could possibly take, but I'm I'm proud of the quality. But uh but before we before we get too far down into things, how have you been, Ariel? How are things going? Pretty well. I just got back from a trip to my favorite place in the world, maybe uh, somewhere where I definitely could see myself just like settling down long term. It's called Bishop, California. It is right on the eastern side of the Sierras, one of the largest mountain ranges in the country. Tallest point in continental U.S., like basically outside of Alaska, is like three hours away from Los Angeles. If you didn't know Mount Whitney, I've been up there. It's amazing. And you really get to like do every kind of amazing like extreme sport out in bishop there's skiing hiking rock climbing uh it's some of the best rock climbing in the world there's like documentaries of stuff that people have climbed out there i spent like six days with friends eating a bunch of food and getting out then getting my butt kicked by the outdoors yeah did you did you ski did you go rock climbing any notable uh trails or peaks that you summited well, we tried to hike Mount Tom, which is like almost 14,000 feet, and uh, we took this route that was pretty gnarly. It was just so long, the approach, and then at the top, it's like a total rock scramble up to the summit. So we didn't get to go all the way to the top. Uh, I was pretty tired, and so that was like a big part of it, that I was just like freaking exhausted from the elevation, but uh, also the conditions weren't that great. It was like not enough ice and snow that you could like put on your crampons um but enough ice and snow that it was like still getting like slippery rock fall conditions and uh it was not great so we didn't make it to the summit so i I totally got my butt kicked by that but then did just a bunch of climbing in the the peabody boulders which are like these world famous boulders that people come to and climb because they're like 50 feet tall and like normally if you go to a gym if anything's more than like 20 feet tall you like climb with a rope but out here, these people climb these rocks without ropes, and it's an amazing experience. Uh, if you ever get into rock climbing or or you do rock climb currently, I would totally recommend trying out one of these super high boulders at some point in your life. I think I learn a lot about myself and about the human condition of being up there. Like, you really have to trust your body and trust your training to keep yourself safe and achieve a goal. I've never tried harder in my life than when I've been on top of these boulders. I really like put my body to its limits because I know if I if I mess up, I die. Like I'm I'm not exactly dead if I fall on a lot of these. Like you know, you can just get like normally maimed. You know, break a couple ankles, spinal injury, or something like that. Like none of it is good. But uh, you could also die. Like and and feeling that in my fingers. Like okay, if these fingers slip, like I'm royally screwed. So like that 
level of focus that you need to have is uh, really special and not something I've really experienced almost anywhere else. I've had like a few situations in the mountains where like you also need to focus or you die. But if you're into that sort of thing, uh, I think you learn a lot, uh, really learn a lot about focus and training and trying hard and preparation. And uh, yeah, I, I go back every year pretty much, sometimes twice a year. So uh, yeah. <laughs> It's weird, but uh, I I love it. It is not weird. It's awesome. That's what it is. And these are things that you and I don't talk about outside of the sh- It's hilarious. I always think that, like, it's so funny. I always think that we're going to do this life catch-up thing for the audience because the audience has asked for this, and, and you and I are going to recover things that we've already talked about as like just as being friends and then you always talk about these things that you've never told me about and i'm always blown away by what you do i love the way that you said like like ah you know if you fall off a boulder it's not a huge deal like you you could die but you'll probably just break a couple ankles like you have (laughs) like you have more than two ankles (laughs) to to be to break you'll break like 1.5 ankles you know like you might only break one (laughs) could break both on average Uh, on average (laughs) but i don't know there's such a culture in the outdoor world of like um, this kind of tension between uh, everybody who's just like constantly posting ev- pictures of like cool stuff that they do on Instagram and like spending so much time on their phone and filming everything and talking about it constantly that I feel like you really don't enjoy it. Like I don't talk too much about it because like I always wanted to be about being in the moment and experiencing the thing and not being about like bragging or telling other people about like this thing that I did. And And I'm certainly not good enough to like really really brag about this stuff like so there's a part of me that's like oh i didn't do anything that special when i'm there like obviously so many people there are better than me at this but i guess you talk about it like oh like what you're doing is insane I was like, oh yeah i guess it is kind of noteworthy and maybe yeah I'm- that's right <laughs> but yeah i definitely i definitely know where you're coming from though with the idea of the more that you brag or or the more that you boast or or yell to the world that you've done a thing the the almost like more new you seem and i feel like this is something we see uh reflected in dungeons and dragons and too like in subreddits is it it feels like the people who are the loudest voices are the ones who are the newest to the hobby because they're like they're trying to find that validation is is what it it seems like to me at least when i'm when i'm looking at posts yeah, I think there's a little bit of like getting, you know, old and jaded also actually just being a sign of like experience that not caring is cool in some ways and not caring shows that you've like been there before. You know, it's a this like classic argument in football, like celebrate like you've been there before. And mm. I, I sort of, you know, disagree with that in some way. I'm like, oh, you should celebrate, like enjoy the thing, you know, like keep the passion alive. And so I think that... Yeah, for for some, that kind of like reminded me what you're saying, you know, like if you, you're not going to post about the 30th time you've done something, but uh, I don't know, like it's cool if you, if you still love something, that's a good thing. You know, being over it is not a good thing. And I think that the D&D community has a little bit of that, but I think it's also a community where still people will always be passionate to roll up a new character. And, and there is still that 
love of the game that a lot of other communities don't have. Like, I think in a lot of other communities, you don't find people who still, like, find this sense of simple joy in just playing the game that I feel like so many people with D&D still just love sitting down to a table any day of the week. I think part of the idea of what you're, or part of the idea that you're exploring there is who are you doing it for? I, man, not not to spend too much more time on this, but someone over the holidays asked me how the like how the podcast was going, and the the tone and the phrasing and the way that they were asking about it, it was clear that they were very interested in our like listenership and whether it was growing and whether or not we were like on our way to getting sponsors, and I think. You and I, Ariel, maybe about a year and a half ago now, kind of realized that the podcast uh, wasn't just going to like catch fire, right? Like we weren't going to quit our jobs and and just do running off the rails podcast content, yeah, like, yeah, as our sure. jobs. And we we hit a crossroads of like, do we want to do this anymore? Like for us is kind of and and i think we do have some very dedicated listeners who we absolutely appreciate and it makes this worth doing for sure but i i think that i would be very sad to not have an outlet for these ideas as i experience them in my in my life um and like not having a place to to share them and also explore them so i i guess the podcast has become running off the rails has become one of these things that we we do for ourselves because we love to do it, not because we're we're looking for fame and fortune. I think that I think that window has has maybe has maybe passed a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and not to say that like fame and fortune were ever like important, but I think it's good to know that you know you just still enjoy doing this thing years later, and that's cool. And I, I totally agree that just like. Having the perspective of like, oh, and somebody asks you how something is going, like, you kind of know that your definition of success is what's important. Similarly to these like conversations about, you know, doing things for social media, I definitely like matured as a person growing up with social media to like find out what is important to me and what I should use it for and, you know, what success means to me. And I think that's something that we had to learn with this as well, you know, and it's kind yeah. of a... It's just a like part of uh, definitely like maturing in the world in, in kind of a crazy, insane world that we live in. You know, like 1999 was a very different world than uh, than we're in today. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's an understatement. That's probably a good a good <laughs> yeah. place to pause. To go back to kicking puppies. <laughs> Waning or waxing philosophical or however that phrase applies to what we were doing. Yeah. Uh, and we can now switch tact to um, I guess yeah, so kick the dog is a is a term that I think originates from screenwriting, which is which makes sense because in that medium you have much less time to set up your story and part of setting up your story is communicating to your audience who the villain of the story is and it is very effective to show not tell your audience who the villain of your story is you can show them who the villain of your story is by having them do harm to something that 
is innocent and could not have gotten in the way of the villains. There's no logical reason to kick the dog, right? Like they were never a threat to the, the villains rolling up into the Western town. And what got me kind of thinking about this was I was, I was listening to Brandon Sanderson's weekly podcast, Intentionally Blank, and he and his co-host Dan were talking about the One Piece live action Netflix series. It was the first One Piece content that either of them had consumed. Uh, longtime listeners of the show know that I've been caught up to the most recent chapter of One Piece ever since high school. So like for the last, uh, I guess, 15 years, I've read the new chapter of One Piece. So I was really excited to, to hear their take on this thing that I love. Uh, these, these two people who obviously their opinions I respect. And it was, it was funny because Dan didn't really like it. And Brandon did like it. So Dan and Brandon were talking about the live action show because neither of them have read the manga or seen the anime. And Dan was saying that he kind of didn't really like the show, like the show wasn't for him. And one of the, his criticisms of the show was that the villains felt two-dimensional to him. And to Brandon, he, he said that it was very effective storytelling, um, that the villains were so obviously evil that you just didn't, they didn't have to spend that much time like digging into th the, the villains and who they are and how they feel about different things before you were excited for the protagonists to, to take them out. The setting up of the villains episode over episode over episode was very straightforward. Yeah, I think this is an interesting dynamic because obviously talking about television is a little bit different than talking about Dungeons and Dragons, but I think it is especially telling in this scenario that even for a medium that I think has so much room to have like really dynamic multi-dimensional villains, Sanderson still advocated for the value of having like more two-dimensional or one-dimensional even characters. And I love that as a as a place to start for a D&D campaign because in D&D you're not really writing a story in television or in anything with a script. Like you as one person get to figure out a whole arc for a character. And so if they're three-dimensional, you get to show all the different dimensions and you know there's going to be different story beats that engage with different parts of that character. And you can set them up in a very like planned out way. Dungeons & Dragons is not so much like that. And I think it's a little bit more about the characters and your players at your table than the NPCs that you set up. Like the NPCs are very important and having a multi-dimensional NPC is really good and something you should strive for. But you also need to have one-dimensional or two-dimensional NPCs in your game. I think just to let the table like actually engage with your world and flow through the world. Like you have so many different things going on. It's not just one person sitting watching a screen. It's like six people all sitting around a table creating together. So having a villain that is like very just obviously the villain and the bad guy and you can fight them. I think is so valuable to letting your players navigate through your world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A common complaint that we see or a common conflict that dungeon masters run into when they're world building is this concept of railroading versus sandboxing, which is, I mean, it's so pervasive that it was the first episode that we ever recorded. And I think the idea of railroading, this idea that 
you need to force your players to stay on the adventure, I think central to that conflict is this idea that your players, given their own free will to navigate your world, would not go in the direction of your villain or your antagonist of their own volition. Like, if if you're trying to get your players from point A to point B, sure, you could lay down a railroad track from point A to point B and put them on a train <laughs> so that they can't they can't go in another direction, right? You don't give them a car, you give them a train and you put them on the track. But if if you put just the most hated villain, the most punchable villain of all time at point B, and you give your players a reason like that they want to go punch that villain, they'll just walk straight in that direction of their own accord, right? Like you don't need to put them on the railroad. I think a problem that a lot of dungeon masters are running into because because they're talking about oh, well, how do I keep my players on the adventure? How do I let my players know where the adventure is? I think that a, a big problem that a lot of dungeon masters are running into is they're not making their villains hateable enough, right? Like, oh, well, that guy's just not that big of an issue. Like, I, I'm going to go handle my own personal quest because, like, exactly. yeah, that guy is causing harm, but he's not, like, he's not Hitler, you know? It's like... <laughs> right, it's like... and I think that this style, it's like, mostly just good DMing to make your motivations emotional and clear and powerful. Like that's what we're advocating for. Because like you said, if they're not that compelled by the story you're putting in front of them, they might just go and do like their own backstory, which is the term you used, Ray. But I think for me, it's like, they're not necessarily going to go and do their own backstory in a way that is engaging for the other players. They might just like start casting you know speak with animals and like talk to a bunch of squirrels and like how many times have we had sessions that went completely off the rails because somebody wanted to talk to a plant or talk to a squirrel and these things are fine like they're fun and they're a huge draw for the silliness of D&D but I think it's easy to tell that you want your players to care about other things so they don't feel like they only thing that they want to do in the world is is talk to a squirrel. There are other things that they're going to want to do and be motivated to do in the world. And I think the best way to think about that is as just showing, not telling. You know, this is such a fundamental part of D&D, but really it's kind of hard to tell your players about a villain and have them care about them. And I think it'd be even harder to like tell your players about a multi-dimensional, like crazy motivation villain. The simpler our villains are, the easier we can just get them to buy in and show them that this villain is bad news. And so I really love this idea of kicking the dog because it's an image. It's a really powerful emotional tool. And so you're just showing the character doing something really evil. And now your players care and know where the story is. They know that they can find the villain if they walk in a certain direction. And I think One Piece is just a master class in doing this. The, I think One Piece, mo almost more so than any other story I've ever consumed, has the most just straightforwardly evil and punchable characters. And this is to the story's credit. The, the villains in One Piece are so gnarly. The different ways that they invent to harm puppies throughout the course of the 1,100 chapters and the degree to which they revel in the act of harming innocents, either in the pursuit of their goal or just because 
they're small and it makes them feel big to to bully these innocent people throughout the story the the feeling of catharsis and release that you have as a viewer as a consumer of the show when the protagonists finally finally put the beat down on these antagonists it's so powerful i mean one of the most uh most youtube scenes anime scenes of all time is a scene of the protagonist punching uh this snot-nosed antagonist who is who has no like real power of their own but they have a ton of importance because of nepotism and for that reason people can't stand up to them and when the protagonist finally because he's a pirate he doesn't care about the rules of the world stands up to that character and puts them in their place oh man does it feel good as an audience member and if i could just bottle up that feeling of like justice putting putting the beat down on this antagonist and give it to my players when they finally beat uh strad or whoever the antagonist is of your adventure then that would be a very very successful <laughs> experience that because that feeling of catharsis is it's incredible it's an amazing release of dopamine having not watched one piece uh ray did send me this clip and i i got jitters you know it's so good there's like these amazing like pieces of rock just like hanging in the air it's like such this dramatic moment you can feel all the tension and then when he like finally punches this guy all of it's released it is the best feeling in the world i i like that you were saying that you would just watch this to feel good some days <laughs> and uh i totally get that and i think that's like you said the experience we love to have for our players at the table we want them to feel the catharsis that feels as real as watching this clip does and so you know i haven't watched one piece but i thought another really great example that you brought up was Maybe from a little bit of like a sillier but no less successful example was The Emperor's New Groove, which actually has like so many different interesting examples uh, of kicking the dog to introduce the characters. Uh, if you remember the movie, know that none of the characters are, are very likable in the beginning. And it takes a, a few minutes into the movie before you actually meet a character that doesn't like totally freaking suck. And, and the way that they you know describe these characters so well is through all these different ways of just kicking the dog and is such a good example of i think things that you can take to uh, different D tables yeah i mean the emperor's new groove is a master class in petting the dog kicking the dog petting the dog kicking the dog the comedy of the movie is almost for people who know about this screenwriting concept so like if you're someone who's who knows about this concept of Okay, in the first 10 minutes of my show, my movie, my story, my game of Dungeons and Dragons, I want to have the good guy do something really nice. And it's like, okay, cool. This this is the this is the hero. This is the protagonist. We're going to root for this person. And then also within the first 10 minutes of the movie, you have the antagonist of your movie do something really bad, right? I think you were talking about the hunchback of Notre Dame is is just a super straightforward example. Oh my of this. god, yeah. It's the worst thing you could like possibly have a character do. He's like tries to murder a baby and I'm just like, okay, well from the rest of this movie I freaking hate this guy and I'm not going to care about a redemption arc or I'm not gonna care about him as a person. Like I want this guy dead. Right. Like if you were to open up your campaign of Dungeons and Dragons with four minutes of exposition, would like a cutscene 
of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. You just you just show the Hunchback of Notre Dame to your players, like, black <laughs> yeah. in all context, ho- yep. hoping they've never seen the Hunchback of Notre Dame, and you, like, repurpose all the characters for different, like, classes and stuff like that. It would be so effective. You don't need a railroad. <laughs> no matter where you... You could drop your players in this world continents away, and they would be like, we gotta find this baby killer, and we gotta kill him. We're gonna <laughs> like, get on a boat. This is the adventure. <laughs> and we're gonna <laughs> yeah. find him. Yeah, exactly. And that's... Yeah, that's totally not railroading. I mean, it's just, like, writing good stories. Yeah. Yeah, you just, you just give your players a direct... Like, a place for them to release their anger and their upsetness with the unfairness of the world finally there's someone who's just unambiguously evil you give them an ontologically evil person where it's just no matter what walk of life (laughs) you come from um i think like kicking dogs is is, and, and killing babies is people just know that that's evil you have to be broken or bad to go around doing these things no matter what your problems are in the world you give your dungeons and dragons players a character to go and take out their frustrations on and it's an ontologically evil person and you're gonna have a successful game of dungeons and dragons yeah i think it's funny that like you can tell that this episode is about like creating emotionally charged situations and that like my levels on my audio recording are like maxing out way way more often than they should (laughs) be crazy (laughs) yeah i'm just like looking over at the like blue bars and it's just like not good (laughs) yeah (laughs) sorry everyone (laughs) yeah but no i mean like in the emperor's new groove i think it's funny that you called it a literal homage to this thing because the very first thing that happens is like the Cusco, the emperor throws an old helpless man out the window for literally no reason the reason is you threw off my groove and it's like obviously so funny and the old guy doesn't die like if he died that would be a very different story but you know it's it's literally this tongue-in-cheek you know message to like the other story writers out there like oh yeah we're doing this thing and uh, and we're doing it for the stupidest reason you could possibly imagine and then we have uh, the actual villain of the story yzma attempt murder like yzma is like kicking the dog left and right i feel like there were some really funny but just instructive examples of this uh in how they introduced the the real villain of the story after having to contrast this with like your other like sort of villain beginning it would you know which Kusto's like a really not great person uh but how are we going to contrast that with like somebody who's even worse and, and yzma does some really messed up things yeah, yeah. I mean, you the first act of the Emperor's New Groove is a dog-kicking contest between Cusco and Yzma, right? It's like, who can kick more dogs faster, right? So, like, Cusco throws an old man out the window. Then he fires Yzma before we've ever seen Yzma do anything, like, evil. The, presumably, you're, like, building empathy for Yzma, right? Like, and he calls her ugly and old, and he fires her. And then he tells Pacha that... This, this super, super humble uh, farmer who, who's coming in. He just wants to help the empire. He tells Pacha that he's going to level his village and put his, like, summer home there. And it doesn't matter that it's been in his family for generations. Like, they got to go find somewhere else to live. And then Yzma, like, it's Yzma's turn, right? So she she kicks a bunch of dogs. She tries to kill Cusco. She's not very nice to Kronk, who we already kind of can tell that he's a little bit innocent because he has like the angel and the devil on his shoulder. So we can tell that he's wrestling with morality and then bad things happen to Cusco 
And he still doesn't turn the corner, right? Like Bucky the squirrel, this like cute, adorable, defenseless squirrel shows up when Cusco's at his absolute lowest point and offers him food, right? He offers him an acorn. And Cusco's really, really mean to Bucky also, right? And then Cusco's mean to Pacha again, even though like Pacha's offering to help him. And it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, it's just the entire movie is a dog kicking contest. (laughs) It's hilarious. Yeah, this one is like particularly violent, (laughs) actually, for being like a kid's movie uh, with lots of like murder attempts. Um, But I do think that there are some examples that are a little bit less violent as well that you can really lean into in, in Dungeons and Dragons. And I think in general, these just like give your your players the license to kill kind of in a way that is so much more interesting to me than the I think most classic way that you give your characters like a license to kill, which is your characters being attacked. Because once combat starts in Dungeons and Dragons, it's very clear that people are going to be doing like lethal things and that it's not a moral gray zone anymore. Like you have the power and you should be exploding them with fireballs. And I think that just starting combats constantly in D&D can be a tough tool to use because it can really slow down your game you know if you want to introduce a a bad guy or you want to introduce some sense of urgency to your players you might have this you know cult that they're stalking like ambush them and that is a great tool ambushing is is a useful tool as a dm but it's just going to be the next 45 minutes to like hour and a half of your session and that i think is not the most narrative way to really introduce a villain like obviously these cultists are now villains but i think it's an overused tool and so uh, another kind of tool that i liked with this kicking the dog was doing it in a non-violent way and i thought uh mr potter from it's a wonderful life is actually a really good example of this mustache twirling villain who we really want to punch like we kind of hate this guy I don't know. I'm not Christian and I have seen this movie like exactly one time. And so, you know, maybe this isn't my lane, but I I, I was asking Ray about it. Like, you know, did you think this was kind of a a good example of something that we could use in Dungeons and Dragons to introduce dog kicking without violence? Yeah. Thinking about Mr. Potter and and villains like him, right? Uh, Like kind of masterminds who pull the strings. They're not, they're not walking around with a gun and shooting the sheriff and the deputy and they're, they're not kicking dogs maybe they're not being particularly nice to children that's a pretty easy way to establish someone as uh not very likable but i think a really interesting way that someone could introduce a villain in their story and and a way that maybe is and maybe a way that's not so obvious or straightforward is you drop your players into your world and you tell them where the adventure is you you tell them where the quest giver is the players go and meet the quest giver and they're they're expecting to be told about a monster that they need to go kill or uh, an artifact that they need to go find in a dangerous place and recover. And instead, this quest giver offers to pay them gold to go kick puppies. Uh, and, that, and that could be to go and kill a farmer's livestock or to go and kidnap somebody or like preferably a child if, if you're trying to establish this person as a villain or go poison a well or go salt some fields, go burn down maybe somebody's mansion. If you, if you don't want this villain to be targeting the little guy like a farmer, you could have them target someone who's upper class, affluent, has a lot of resources, go down, go burn down their mansion. 
or like go evict a family from a home. Something that's clearly something that your players will be taken aback by. Like this is not what we didn't come to play Dungeons and Dragons to go be bad people. And hopefully your players do what you expect them to do, which is to turn down the quest. And then they start to investigate this villain who has tried to hire them to do this thing. Because now you've, you've introduced a villain by trying to entice, you introduce them as a person who's willing to pay other people to go kick puppies or go inflict harm on innocents. I actually love this idea so much that I am like literally 100% going to use this as the intro to the next one shot or campaign that I play. I think it creates this really amazing opportunity to one, introduce a bad guy from moment one of the campaign and give the players a really interesting role-playing opportunity. Like, are they going to speak up in the room? Are they going to take a stand morally and really show a courageous moment for their character? Or are they going to wait till afterwards and talk it over with the other players and have some really good role-play moments in the party to determine their various levels of morality and which one of the characters are more comfortable with something that's maybe morally bad for for money and we can get some really good role play moments for the characters working out party dynamics yeah that, that's a great idea yeah it'd be interesting to for some players to like out themselves as also being like capital e evil right like yeah let's go kidnap some children <laughs> it's like yeah it, it, whoa it'd be crazy and uh, i think it is good to you know maybe give the players an opportunity to you know really have a strong emotional reaction if it's their first time playing D. like i don't want them to have to logically think out what the best thing is to do in this situation i want them to react and react in character and i think the best way to do that is to give some give them something that's like has a really strong emotional appeal it's like pathos of kidnapping a child is it's very easy to role play out it doesn't take a lot of knowledge about fantasy worlds or about DD in general to stand up for for somebody that is powerless and, and maybe being exploited so let's try applying these concepts anyone who's listened to the show before knows that me and ariel think that curse of strahd is just one of the best DD adventures out there so let's try and apply these concepts of petting the dog and kicking the dog to strahd one of the reasons I think Strahd is such a good character is that the first encounter you have with really believing that Strahd is evil is a little bit of a kicking the dog concept. Strahd turns the priest's son into a vampire spawn to torment the priest. And this vampire son, you know, is a helpless kid and he has certainly kicked the dog. But it's a very indirect example. You don't actually see Strahd do anything. and You don't really get this evocative moment of the villain twirling their mustache doing something bad. And it's uh, only later that you really learn the depth of this story and like figure out and put all the puzzle pieces together. But with Kicking the Dog, we want to be way more direct. We want to see Strahd do something really bad from day one. And I like this idea because uh, Strahd is meant to show up in front of the players. So, Ray... What is a good way that you could really show Strahd himself kicking a dog? The first village that the players arrive at is the village of Barovia. And the town is in a really bad state because of how oppressive Strahd has been on the people who live there. This is really great setting. It really helps to set the tone that Strahd is just this oppressive force who has ruled over Barovia for 
a long, long time and, and the people are just completely hopeless. But I think it would be very effective if perhaps instead of the players finding the priest's son who's been turned into a vampire spawn like previously in the past maybe the priest has a, a very very young son like maybe like a 10 year old boy uh the players meet the priest they meet the boy and the and the players do something to maybe they undo one of strad's like plans maybe strad has a a ruler of the town or a mayor of the town that he's put in place to oversee things and the players bust down his door and maybe you've had that <laughs> that character kick some dogs also <laughs> on, a, on a lower scale at this point. Or they find like a ritual that Strahd is using to like, you know, keep up the evilness of the town and they destroy the ritual, right, something right. like that, yeah. They do something to, to make the town just a little bit better. And maybe the you make the son of the priest this like, really plucky happy-go-lucky he's like the only person in the town who's who's happy and has hope he is like the hope of a child and strad shows up oh god this is so bad and vampire spawnifies the child like in front of the players like strad doesn't engage in combat with the players because they're beneath his intervention at this point but he he wants to make it clear that he's going to take an eye for an eye with every small little thing that the the villagers are able to scrabble together to to resist his influence he's going to take something of equal or greater measure back yeah from oh my and god he, like vampire spawnifies this kid in front of the in front of the players and the priest i'm just imagining strad showing up and saying when you get in my way, there will be consequences. And then he turns this kid who's like the hope of the town into the vampire spawn. Like, oh my god, that's that's really dark. That's like gothic, macabre stuff. Yeah. I just thought of that. I was a little bit afraid I wasn't going to be able to. No, no, it's so good. It's so spot. good. <laughs> um, but I think I think it's interesting that you bring up this. Just the the way that strad delivers the consequence i thought was really interesting too because it's not what i had in envisioned in my head um so this is actually something that i have in my notes but wasn't really sure where we were going to talk about it or if we were going to talk about it one piece just to totally jump back to one piece is ultra ultra long story it's a thousand and one hundred chapters or a thousand two hundred chapters long mm -hmm. at this point um, and and there are the cast is gigantic. There have been there's been villain after villain after villain after villain after villain, and all of these villains kick puppies. And for and somehow the author keeps it fresh. And there's actually some level of there are different types of puppy kicking villains that I've been able to establish or like pick out by looking at One Piece's cast of villainous characters. Um, and they fall broadly into three categories. And I think it's interesting because the line of dialogue that you gave Strahd there, I warned you that there would be consequences if you resisted me, is very kind of cause and effect, mm -hmm. right? Like in that line, it was very stoic, uh, almost like a judge meeting out due punishment. But that's not the way that I had envisioned it in my head at all. So the way that you phrased it is falls into one of these characters in one piece that I kind of associate as the the agent. So this is somebody who is willing to kick puppies in the pursuit of their goal 
And it doesn't seem like they revel in the act of kicking the puppies, but they certainly don't shy away from it, right? Like all they need is a reason. Two plus two equals four to this person. But in my head, I had Strahd kind of enjoying the act of turning this small kid into a vampire spawn. Like he shows up and sees what the adventurers have done and and maybe is like a little bit upset, like shows some a reaction and maybe as a dungeon master, you're trying to bait your players into giving a little bit of smack talk, you know, like, like, yeah, and we're coming for you. Oh my God. Like, that. like your, your reign of terror here is over and you can have him like sneer and you have the players roll initiative. Like they think that they're going to go into combat. The players go first, right? You have like Strahd monologue for his action. They do their damage. He heals back the damage because of his innate healing. And then on his turn in combat, he teleports over to the child. Vampire spawnifies them. And in the next round of combat, the players like try and hammer on Strahd again. Then the kid turns into a vampire spawn and attacks the his dad. Oh my <laughs> right? god. Like the priest or one of the players. And then now that the players have something else to deal with, you just have strahd like fade away into the pink mist at that point like cackling with laughter like that was what i had in my head and that's that's a different type of one piece villain that shows themselves that's so vicious because i I think the players will kind of blame themselves in in a little bit of way if like they hadn't twisted the knife at strahd and like made fun of him and and goaded him like he would have just been mad, sized up these new adventurers and, you know, maybe fought with them and left a little bit. But because they, like, goaded him, he, you know, did this horrible, horrible kick the dog action. You know, he, like, <laughs> I like that, that you know, you could have just, like, on a, an action-oriented monster, <laughs> just one of their actions be kick the dog. And, you know, that's ostensibly <laughs> what he does. Like, he, you know, he hurts a little kid. You know, when I first played Strahd, like, we didn't care that much about, you know, this priest and his son. Like, we were certainly sad for them, but not on this level. Yeah, and I think that was us, too. I think the fact that you come across the church and the evil has already been done. Like, you don't—you kind of imagine that maybe the son had been fighting against Strahd for a long time, and this is just something that, like, happens here in Barovia. If I, if I run Curse of Strahd— I'll do it. That yeah. <laughs> and then we talked about kind of like the having a lesser villain in place. And, and when I was actually pitching it, I was like, oh, we're going to have two people kicking dogs. It seems a little overt and redundant, but you could actually have this mayor who's been put in place be the, the third category of one piece villain. In, in one piece, there are some villains that pop up who are incompetent antagonists. Typically they're, they're whiny, they talk really loud, they talk a big game, but they're not strong. They have they have no power other than the power that has been given to them typically by like nepotism. It's typically who who they're related to is why they have the position that they have. You could have the mayor of this town be someone who's walking around and making everyone's life like miserable and no one is standing up to them because they know that they have like Strahd's protection. And then when the players finally brashly put this guy down and punch him in the face, first of all, they'll they'll have that amazing catharsis for having given someone what they had coming to them, that like karmic retribution. 
and then you shift into maybe maybe like a full hour passes and and the people are celebrating that this person has been removed and that's when like Strahd shows up and and the music stops you know and, and bad things start to really yeah happen. but i really love this this kind of categorization that you've done it does sound a little bit like you were saying like oh if you had a mayor kicking dogs and then you have Strahd kicking dogs is it too much but no, I think this really is important for, you know, why Sanderson feels like One Piece characters are actually good characters. It's because, you know, we all know a bully or have, like met a bully in our lives or we all have like seen enough TV and have experienced these tropes like enough times that a, a bully character in that moment, we're learning about one side of their character and it is so overwhelming. Like they are so overwhelmed by this need to feel bigger and to compensate for their own insecurities that's a real thing that people go through and it's a real reason why people do bad things and just because in the moment that's like their only motivation it doesn't mean they're any less real like they still feel like a real character if you have like one style of of dog kicker that's doing it to feel big and feel strong and you have another character that is doing it because they actually are strong and they freaking love other people suffering and proving how strong they are and are really evil, you suddenly have two characters that are foils for each other. And so even though like one character is one-dimensional and another character is one-dimensional, the story itself is extremely multi-dimensional. And I, I love this idea so much. I think that it gives your players like the perfect roleplay opportunity where they get to say classic lines like, oh, does that make you feel strong? Well, I'll bet you feel real cool right now. And, and they're such easy cues to pick up on. It's almost like an alley-oop for your players. Like, I love those DMing mm -hmm. moments where it's like you just give your players a layup. You give them a really great moment to just say the, the witty line, to do the banter. And, like, this has got to be the easiest, best, most useful example of where you can really alley-oop your players some good banter. Absolutely. Especially the intro of a campaign when players are kind of, like, feeling out their characters and... It's cool. You get your players to pick a side, right? Like they they land on the side against Strahd. They like take a stand on the side because I mean, as a dungeon master, you risk the players kind of operating in Barovia as opposed to like standing against exactly, Strahd yeah. in Barovia. They're kind of just like moving from town to town and doing what suits them. But you put this bully in front of them, and a, a bully who doesn't seem all that powerful that that they could easily take care of and for some reason some weird reason like the the people of the town are just taking his abuse and it's like well we're gonna put an end to this and it turns out that that was that may have been not such a good idea for for little tiny tim who now savors the test of flesh and i like that uh you really are putting this in the beginning of a campaign with Strahd. And, and I like that you that you mm. noticed that. You picked that out and said, this is a really good thing for early, for a character. I think this type of like banter and, and finding yourself could be a really character-defining moment. Like a lot of times we play in D&D, &D, we actually figure out who the character is by the first five sessions. Like we have an idea and then it changes because of things that we do and feel right in the game. And for the person sitting at the table who it feels right to like stand up and say like, no, you're doing something wrong and I'm going to shout about it. That can become one of their touchstones like throughout the whole campaign. And, and I really like this. And, and I was also thinking that uh, for an astute listener, you might remember Strahd and be like, 
this mayor could just be the like burgomaster of Valaki, like that other character who's like kind mm. of like not so mm-hmm. good, <laughs> as to put it mildly. I try not to curse too much on this uh, on this podcast, but he's, <laughs> yeah. you know he's a kind of a piece of work, I should say. And uh, maybe you could yeah. integrate uh, his character in with the town of Valaki. Maybe he's like visiting the town of Barovia from Valaki to like really do some like pretty nasty bargaining and it's like they're dying and they need food and he's like oh yeah i'll give you food if you give me all of your jewelry and and you he's trying to take like the family heirlooms from people and, and their only magical defenses against strahd or these like family heirlooms and he's like well you want to starve mm-hmm. then he That's can even right. leave and you can try to fight him and stop him from going and then you meet him again in you know the next chapter when you're actually in Valaki. like stuff like that could be really cool uh, I think that, you know, I, I was listening more and more to your your ideas, Ray, which have been freaking aces this episode. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, like the Velaki guy oh, is like you. kind of like this. Yeah, I think it's really useful. We talk about like lenses and tools that you have in your toolkit. And like maybe you've planned a session of Dungeons and Dragons. And then like before maybe you've listened to this episode and you feel inspired, maybe like a reminder that you have for yourself is let me look at my preparation and circle the places where I'm having people pet and kicked off. Yeah. And can I and can I put exclamation points on those things to make them even more motivating for my players, right? Like the the priest's son isn't a vampire spawn when they meet him. Actually, like how could I make this even an even harder kick? to a dog and it's like and it's like oh you just gonna turn him into a vampire spawn in front of the players that's so much worse yeah absolutely i think that's a really good piece of advice that going through how can you use this tool when you're designing your campaign it, it can almost be more of an editing tool than a initial creative prompt in some ways absolutely well i hope this was useful <laughs> we certainly had fun talking about it yeah, absolutely. And um, so if you purchased your your print-on-demand version of Emery's log of legendary eminences, it probably hasn't arrived yet. But I I hope you really enjoy it. For anyone who's listening who didn't back the Kickstarter, uh, the YouTube video is linked on DriveThruRPG for Emery's log of legendary eminences. We'll link it on the episode description as well. And um, hopefully it will, it will help to make you more confident in what you're per- purchasing i know that i myself when i've been buying physical products off of drive through rpg i'm a little skeptical of, of what it's going to actually like look like what like whether or not the print will be high quality and and uh, images will have good saturation and how durable the pages will be so hopefully the video really helps to arm you with that information so that you can you can decide for yourselves until next time i'm raymond o'connor I'm Ariel Rasco. And thanks for listening to Running Off the Rails. If you enjoyed Running Off the Rails, please like, follow, and review our show on your platform of choice. Please follow our Instagram, Running Off the Rails, for notifications whenever we release a blog post, a new episode, or new content on the DMs Guild. If you prefer a specific type of content, please send us a message on Instagram. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen, and you can find Hoist and more of Cohen's music on the Free Music Archive. You can find links to all of our content at runningofftherails.com or on our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails.